0: Hey, everybody. This month's roundup is brought to you by Arcane Wonders and their new tile line game, Neotopia, which is all about building the perfect city of the future. And we do it by laying out these awesome little bakelite tiles that are wonderful and clanky, and they represent renewable energy, sustainable agriculture, breakthroughs in technology, and investments in community. And uh, who knew investing in people would be the key to our future? I'll you know, figure. Anyway, though. It's my turn, and on my turn, I'm going to take three actions. And those actions can either be draw more projects into my hand, so I've got stuff to work towards, or move tokens out of these factories and into the adjacent regions so that I can try to fulfill these patterns. This is three points to me if I can get two community next to an energy. This is four points to me if I can do a set of three purple technology. But I don't want to do this. Because I'm the blue player, and the more purple technology I put out into the world, the more I'm helping my opponent, the purple player. So this one I've been holding on to for a while, and I'm probably not going to do it. Although, would be fair, since I'm not the purple player, helping the purple player would get me four points. If this belonged to the purple player and they did it, they'd only get two points for helping themselves. But I don't want to help them at all. Right. So, anyway... I've got three actions. I'm going to move, ideally, three of these things into different regions and try to do this one. So I need to move blue or reds into regions. And here's a blue and a red. I mean, I could do this right now. I could just move this red right here. And boom, I'm done. That's my first of three actions. I've scored three points in this region, except I can't because this region has recently seen this project completed and they don't want to see it again. Not until something else is done in this region could you do it again. So that's no good. But I could do it over here too. I could just move this as my first action, and then, boom, I've done this, and I score three points in this region. So that's cool, except for the way scoring works. Because at the end of the game, we're going to check each of our three regions, and wherever we've done the best, uh, which right here is 11 points over here, 13 points over there, we're just going to score our base points. But wherever we've done the worst, we are going to triple our points. And over here, I'm only at six points. So I'm going to triple that at the end of the game. Which means... Um, Right now, every point I get into this region is the equivalent of three points. So this is where I want to work. You want to keep everything in balance as much as possible. So I need to catch over here. And I don't think I can do this over here, right? Because I can only move purple and greens. And I mean, I could do this. I could move this purple over here and score four points, but I'd be helping purple and I don't want to help purple. No, no. So I think I want to build over here, but I'm going to do it a different way. I'm going to grab another project. And this is the most valuable one, five points versus three or four or four. Let's go on ahead and snag this one. That is my first of three actions. Now, for my second action, I am going to take this last bit of agriculture that's in this factory. I'm going to move it over here. Boom. Okay, and I've got one more action, but something just happened. Whenever a factory empties out, all the stuff that's in the planning stages fills up that factory. And then we take the tile and we flip it. And oh my gosh, folks, we're near the end of the game. Uh, This is coming up faster than I thought. Um, So this reminds us hey, refill the planning area. Boop, boop. With um, you know one of each. Although sometimes these could be you know different combinations of things. But anyway, so we put one of each. The game is almost over. So I'm glad I'm getting some points over there before time is up. So, um, now all of a sudden, there's a bunch of new stuff I can flood in here. I've done one action, taking a card. I've done two. And now for my third action, I'm going to grab another one of these greens. And I'm going to slide it over here. Because I remember, I'm trying to finish this. And I'm going to put it right here. And you might say, wait, I can't put it there. There's no... I mean, you can see places you can build and places you can't build. Well, throughout the game, we pick up these tokens. They're worth three points at the end of the game, so they're nice. But you can use them to unlock powers. And I'm going to use this right now to say, I'm going to break the rule and build on the outskirts, just like that. And then just like that, I have made five points. One, two, three, four, five. And in doing that, I crossed this line and got myself another token. So I lost three points, but I got them back. I made five points, which was really 15 points because this is still my weakest area. And then I put this over here. And those were my three actions. And then a new card comes out. And then my opponent says, "Oh my gosh, we're almost out of time. What am I gonna do? Which of these am I gonna try to get? I mean, because purple's doing it, rocking 12, 11, and 9. So this is their best spot to work in too. Although as soon as they make any points, then suddenly this might be their worst spot, or this might be their worst spot. There's one more thing I haven't mentioned. Remember, um, Jen over here is purple. I am blue. Uh, My score here is really 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, because at the end of the game, my biggest contiguous group of blue will pump me up. And same over here. I've got four more points over here and four more points over there. Purple has three points over here, three points over there, and three points over there. So that's another thing that we are having to take into account as we do our best to build the uh, future in Neotopia. And hopefully that gives you a little bit of an idea of how you puzzle your way through this game. And uh, folks, let's get on with the show. And it's going to be a really big show, folks, because I've got 21 games to tell you about the gen I played over the last month. Actually, we played 22, but I cannot talk about Space Bees today. Apiary will have to wait because there's an embargo. But... I do have a bunch of really fun things to tell you about. And as always, going to be countdown format from our least favorite to our most favorite. So I'm going to have a new game of the month just in time for Essence Spiel. Speaking of Essence Spiel, folks, today I'm looking backwards, but tomorrow I'm looking forwards. I'm going to tell you my top 20 most anticipated games for Essence Spiel. And I cannot wait to go for that. But first things first, folks. You want to hear about games, I'm going to tell you about games. And we're going to start, sadly, at the bottom of the list with Express Route. Now, this is an interesting game because it combines my least favorite thing in all of board gaming, Pick Up and Deliver as a mechanism, with my most favorite thing, Cooperative Gameplay. And I was really curious to see what this would do to mix these things together, because Cooperative Pick Up and Deliver is not a usual thing. And this is a really unusual game. And I should say, it is very well implemented. If you like cooperation and you like picking up and delivering stuff... You owe it to yourself to check this out. But the co-op was not enough to overcome my initial and inherent, you know, uh disinterest in Pick Up and Deliver, but how does it work? Uh, It's pretty cool. On your turn, you are going to get to do a certain number of actions, and you can spread those actions amongst the different um, trucks and a plane that we are trying to coordinate to move all around the United States to pick up packages in one place and deliver them in another. And every round, more and more and more orders are coming in that we have to fulfill. And if we can't fulfill them, we will eventually run out of time, go into the red, and uh, lose. But every time we successfully deliver a package, we take some of that pressure off, and we have the potential to unlock various bonus powers and abilities that we can use for the rest of the game. All very strongly thematically themed to you know a distribution network in the USA. So I think everything here works really, really well. But there were... well, there's one big thing that surprised me, this game is crazy hard. This is one of the hardest cooperative games Jen I have played in a long time. Even played in just the basic mode. It's super monstrously difficult. And this is probably where my biggest issue came in. Um, there are, like I said a ton, I forget, like 20 different special powers you can unlock, and in the default mode, you're supposed to have all of them available to you, right? And to me, that was just a bit overloaded. I wanted to say, no, in this game, I'm going to have to focus on these powers, or these powers, or these powers, instead of just always having everything available. And you can play in that mode, but what does it do? It makes the game even harder. And um, so, I wanted to play at these harder difficulty levels, but we could barely pull off a win at the baby difficulty level. So, um, for a game that I think is really kind of pushing more of a you know a very, very broad, appealing gateway uh, you know format and gameplay style, it was surprising how rough this game is on players. And to get it into the mode I wanted to play, we really couldn't enjoy it. And that's why, sadly, even though it does everything it sets out to do very smoothly, sp- smartly it's just not our bag uh pick up and deliver we were not turned into converts converts by number 21 on the list express route then we go on to number 20, Spellbook. Now, this is an interesting game from from Walker Harding, a very, very popular, very successful designer. And I would certainly say this is a solid design of gathering runes to be able to cast spells, to earn special powers, to be able to more quickly gather runes, to um, learn more spells, to basically uh, score as many points as possible. Gameplay-wise, I have a hard time not drawing parallels between this and Ticket to Ride. In Ticket to Ride every turn, a lot of times you just draw a couple cards, draw a couple cards, draw a couple cards, draw a couple cards, cards, boom! Lay down a route. In this game, you spend a lot of turns. Get a couple runes, get a couple runes, get a couple runes, boom! Learn a new spell that will help you in the future doing other stuff. But... It's interesting to me. The reason... I mean, the the gameplay here is solid. The presentation is great. Really, really nice, high-quality components. But ultimately, it didn't really resonate with me and Jen because, well, it's interesting. I looked on BoardGameGeek and this is officially listed as like a 45 minute game and that feels about right. Probably, you know, between a half hour and 45 minutes, but for the depth and complexity level of this, this should have been a 20 minute game. Here's the deal. Imagine Ticket to Ride where you don't start with any cards in your hand. And instead of taking two cards per turn, you take one. <clears throat> and so, it takes quite a while for this game to get going. And it really shouldn't. If this game had everybody start with a handful of just randomly drawn runes right from the get-go, and we had some method, or or even better, everybody got to choose one of your randomly selected spells. Because every time you play, this game comes with a ton of different spells. All kinds of different cool powers. If every time we played, of the five spells we've got, no, is it seven spells we've got, each player, the same reverse turn order, gets to pick one spell that is ours, that we've already learned right from the get-go. And then... We start with some runes in hand, so the game is jump-started right into the action. That would really, I think, overall improve the game while also cutting its length down in half. As it is, you spend a lot of time taking a lot of baby steps. Slowly, slowly, slowly. And yes, I've got a spell, but, oh, it's just a little baby level 1 spell. And it's going to take me longer to get to a level 2 spell or a level 3 spell. And, yeah, it would just took a little bit too long. Uh, like, a ticket-to-ride game that takes twice as long as it should because there's a much more slow drip feed. That's basically what we got with Spellbook. I think we would have enjoyed the game a lot more if it came with an express mode, basically. And that's what I'd love to see. And honestly, I suspect it would be super-duper easy to come up with a homebrew variant to uh, really, like I said, speed up the proceedings for number 20 of the month, Spellbook. Okay, then we go on to number 19 on the list, The Perfect Wave, which is an interesting game. And if you're at all interested in surfing, I think it's one that's definitely worth seeking out. Now, I'm not. I could care less one way or the other about uh, catching radical waves, but I was still interested in trying it. Um, And what's it all about? Well, basically, what happens in this game is you are drafting and playing cards to your board in front of you, trying to create the perfect wave that you're going to surf. And what you want to do is if you're grabbing wave cards, you want to play them in ascending order. You want to end with like a one and then a two and then a two and then a three and then a four and then a seven and then a nine and a 10 and a 10 or something like that. Uh, Because that represents at the end, to the far right is where your wave starts and it gets smaller and smaller and smaller. Much like a real wave. And I thought that was actually very, very cool. Um, you know, nice thematic touch. You can also, however, grab trick cards that you play above the waves. And um, these trick cards want you to do different things uh, like getting different wave values next to them or different tricks or not having tricks around or all kinds of interesting things. And uh, the trick of everything is, folks, that when you're playing these cards to your board, you're playing them face down. And um, you're, it's not until the end, after everybody is. done... playing all their cards and filling up, that we do final scoring, which is when players actually ride their waves. And so... One thing that was kind of obnoxious was constantly, right? Okay, did I put a seven here or a six here? Let me go back and peek again, because the rules come around and say, yeah, you can totally peek, but it is important that you keep your wave and your trick secret, because you don't want players, um, you know, taking away a seven because I desperately need a seven because how I've put a you know a, a six and an eight and I need to put a seven there because my trick needs a seven and a seven comes out. And if you could see everything I'm doing, you would grab that seven and use it for yourself. So you're supposed to keep all this stuff secret, which was a little bit of extra memory work to try and remember, right, what is it I'm trying to do? Let me peek again. So there was a lot of that stuff going on. I suppose the game would be a lot more pleasant if everybody around the table would just agree, hey, don't peek at my stuff. So I can just keep it all face up and just keep it nice and easy to keep track of what I'm trying to do here. But the other thing is there is a third type of card you can grab called a paddle card. Because at the beginning of this, as you are playing your um, waves and your tricks out face down so nobody can see them, you can also play paddle cards that lets you move your surfer token further and further to the right. And the thing is, you need to get your surfer. It doesn't matter if you make the perfect wave like in this picture here. If you don't get your Surfer all the way over to the right, he's not going to get to surf it. You're only going to surf so far. And by the same token, once a surfer has moved a certain distance, you can't play cards to the left of the surfer anymore. And so you're kind of limiting your abilities the more you're trying to get in position to have the perfect run. And so, there are definitely cool elements. The draft can be tricky because of these three different things you're desperately trying to grab, and stuff is coming and going really, really fast. And you're trying to build up, you know, the perfect, uh, you know, one-turn engine. It's an engine you're going to play through once, activating all these powers as the wave, you know, um, gets smaller and smaller as you ride it to the end. And I do think it's sharp. And again, if I had any interest at all in surfing, I could see it being a a real winner for me and Jen. But for both of us, we thought, yeah, this is sharp, and this is smart, and it's really thematically grounded, and it's all serving a theme that we're just not particularly interested in. And on top of that, it does require us to be constantly, right, let me peek Uh, Can I even put this card here? Or Wait, no, do I have to put this to the left? Because you're supposed to be playing with all your cards face down. It's interesting, every single picture on BoardGameGeek shows the cards face up because that's how you want to play them so it's easier for you to remember what you're doing. But nope, you're supposed to keep them face down until it is cool, it is dramatic to have the big uh, reveal at the end and see if your opponent, how well they do. Kind of feels like a surfer standing by and watching somebody else ride a, a tubular wave and all that. But... I mean, those are the things that really kind of kept me and Jen from falling in love with it, which is why The Perfect Wave comes in at number 19 on the list. Now, let's move on to number 18, Skyrockets, uh, which is interesting. It's actually a sequel to a real-time cooperative game that came out last year, I think, called Kites. And right now, I'm just going to call it, folks. Uh, unfortunately, man, it doesn't look like there's any pictures of this at all on BoardGameGeek, are there? Nope. Not a single picture. Has anybody got any videos I could show? Nope. So I can't show you anything, folks, right now, except for the back of the box. Um, But... In a nutshell, what we're trying to do is keep a magical firework show going. And that firework show is represented by colorful sand timers. Uh, one sand timer goes down after 30 seconds, and 50 seconds, and 70 seconds, and 90 seconds. And what on you're going to do on your turn is you have a hand of cards. You're going to play a card that tells you to flip two of those sand timers. And since all the sand timers are kind of out of sync with each other, you're trying to pick the right card to flip two to keep them going. Because you don't want to flip a sand timer right after it got flipped, because then it'll run out. And if a sand timer ever runs out, we lose a point. If we lose three points, we lose the game. So, we are trying to stay alive and coordinate. I might want to play this uh, blue-red, because I think, hey, the is going to be working pretty well, um, and I play that, and that's very, very cool. But I didn't flip the yellow, and the yellow's about to go. So I say, hey, I'm going to play this flip. Do you have something yellow? Can you take care of the yellow after I've done this? Yes, okay, boom, I'll do that. And then, boom, you jump into the yellow, and there's a lot of High pressure, real time, back and forth going on between players as we're trying to do this, and it works just like kites did before it. Now, I would say overall, Skyrockets is a superior game to kites because I think it's a little bit more approachable, it's a little bit less punishing than kites was, and Jen and I were able to put ourselves into it really quickly. Plus, it's got another excellent element. Uh, if you remember the crew, a, a cooperative chick taking game, the crew comes with I don't know a booklet of like fifty different missions or something like that that. She- change the rules in various ways. Skyrockets comes with 30 unique different firework shows you want to put on. And some of the ways these different firework shows change the rules of the game are incredibly clever. I mean, like, really. I mean, I did, we, Jen and I, we played, I think, four games. And I just kind of jumped around and did a few different ones to get a sense. We lost our first one. Uh, we won our second one. And they were like, oh, hey, let's jump up to a medium level one. And we lost that. And then let's try another one that's similar to it, but a little bit easier. And then we won that. And we're like, yeah this works, and um, if you're looking for a high-stress, uh, very, very interactive, working with other players under extreme-timed crunch uh, cooperative games, uh, about with really, by the way, absolutely gorgeous art to represent all these magical fireworks shows we're putting on, and an absolutely epic ton of variety in all the different ways they can change the rules, like limited communication, or you don't have a hand of cards, you've got card piles you're drawing from, or you have to uh, fulfill random cards instead of... I mean, there's lots of different things this game does. It's worth checking out Skyrockets. the only reason it comes in so low. I mean, personally, I'd probably rank it a fair bit higher, because I really dug it. My wife, she found it a bit too stressful too, too stressful for her. And so I'm, you know, because I take my wife's uh, opinions into account as I rank these, and so for her, because it was really, really tough uh, for her, I mean, she was up to the challenge and she enjoyed it, but she found herself thinking, you know, I'd rather, if I were to play something like this, I'd rather play Fuse because in Fuse, I'm not working as closely to everybody rest. This game so requires players to be really simpatico, and I think that's really, really great. Uh, but it means you're under so much stress, incredibly high stress right from the get-go, and maybe it's a little bit too stressful as a co-op game, uh, which is why uh, Skyrockets comes in at number 18. Okay, now let's move on to number 17, Dragon Keepers which is an absolutely gorgeous-looking game full of the sweetest, cutest, charming baby dragons you've ever seen. Or juvenile dragons. I'm not sure what what their age are. But in this game, we are basically dragon keepers who are responsible for taking care of their health and well-being so they can grow into big, strong dragons. Um, But really, at its heart, this game is a uh, is a very clever card game where, on your turn, you have a handful of cards that represent all these different dragons you'd like to play to your table in front of you so you can score points and unlock bonus powers and all kinds of stuff depending on what bonuses are available when you play the cards. The thing is, say I've got a hand of three red dragons and a green dragon. I would really, really, really like to play those three red dragons and get a big triple score. The problem is, in the center of the board, there are two face-down decks. One which shows the left side of the left left page of a book, and one that shows the right page of the book. And whatever the book is showing currently is what you can actually play. So like, if you look at what's on screen right now, I can only play one green dragon, but I want to play three red dragons. And now I have a green dragon in my hand, so I could say, oh, I'll just take advantage of this right now and play the one green dragon, but I'll only get a dinky little point. And so what I could do is, hey, you know what? I'm going to draw this blue dragon underneath the left page. And that means uh, that card is going to flip, and then maybe, hopefully, I'll reveal a three, um, and then I do, and it's three. Oh, but it's three green dragons, and I still want to play red dragons. All right. Well, I'll take this green dragon on the right, and hopefully, uh, the new card that's revealed will give me what I want now. And so, you're, over time, you are collecting a bigger and bigger and bigger hand of all of these dragons, trying to get them into set collection, and hoping that the book will let you play um, what you know what you've got in hand, you know, the, the, to the to the best of your ability, and score big big points. Like if you could play five. green dragons at once, you get a massive point uh, income. But will the five in the green card come up at the moment you've got five green cards in hand? Maybe, maybe not. It could sound very lucky, right? But here's the brilliant thing. On your turn, after you take one, two, or three cards, you know which which adjust the book as you're going, um, you can then take cards that are in your hand and play them back to the book. You can turn them back over. So in that example... Um, the uh, cards I was taking, trying to get a three red in play. You know what? I didn't. It ended up being three green. But one of the cards I took, or but, but one of the cards I have in my hand says, "Hey, you know what?" you can um, play this card back onto the book and change the green into red. And then all of a sudden it says three red. And so I gave up a card, a card I would have liked to have scored, but instead I turned it into a way to modify the deck. Then I can play the cards I want, get the big payday, and then, here's the extra interesting thing, even though it's not your turn, if you had three red dragons at that point, you could play them as well. Um, So you get to piggyback off of my turn also. And so this game is also about, if somebody's collecting a lot of given colors you probably want to get some of that color too so that when they do their play of them maybe you can piggyback off it as well and I'm just describing the basics but there's so much extra interesting stuff there are wild cards uh, that you can earn so you can play uh, you can add to uh, be any color or um, let you play up to six of a given color there are a ton I think there's like was it T- a 12 10 or 12 different special powers and every time you play you open up a chest a treasure chest tile that says oh the um the the crystals that you collect is one of the rewards can have a different special power letting you manipulate things in lots of different ways this game is really really sharp and um, it also has I think, arguably, the cutest dragon art you will ever see in your life. It is just absolutely stunning and gorgeous and charming. And uh, there's one other interesting twist to it. Because there are four colors of dragons. And um, you want to keep filling up your piles with more and more of these dragons and getting more and more points because you're taking care of all these dragons. But once a given color of dragon is surrounded by two other colors... you know, I've been playing red and white, red and white, red and white. But then I play a green. And I put it to the right of white. All of a sudden... I can't play white dragons anymore for the rest of the game. And then, you know, once I play a blue to the right of my green, I can't play green dragons anymore. So, at the beginning of the game, you're wide open, but you will very quickly put yourself in a, t- a uh, straight jacket where, oh, because I played this third color, now the second color, I can't play anymore. And am I ready to make that pivot or did I still have other stuff I want to do? Are there still more of them coming? Do I have other cards that can impu- can reprogram the book to make this uh, dragon that I'm about to get... Uh, to to cut off, uh, you know, still valid, really sharp stuff. I actually liked it quite a bit, and again, this is going to be one that I personally would rank a bit higher. It came in at number seventeen because Jen really loved it too, but she found the extra shackly restriction of saying, "Hey, once you played your third your third type of dragon, your um, one of your first two types of dragons is off limits anymore," and that can be kind of frustrating. And I kind of almost wish it almost feels like because this. This was designed and done the art by Michael Menzel. And I remember reading about how he did Legends of Andor as a game for his kids, originally. One of the greatest modern board game adventure games of all time. And it just turns out it's uh, you know good for players of all ages. And I could see how this started out as a game that he wanted to play with younger kids. I mean, heck, it's even officially rated for ages 8 and up. Um, I'm surprised the game doesn't come with a thing that says, hey, you know what? As a, a more easygoing variant, don't lock off your dragons. Continue to play them. Um, you know, So you can keep that option open. Heck, maybe one of the treasure chests does a allow you to do that. I'm actually, I'm almost positive one of them does. So, you know, that is a way to do it. But uh, it's coming in um, at a little bit lower, not because it is isn't a brilliant game, a beautiful game, a very, very sharp game, a very simple and fast-playing game, too. I mean, it is over lickety-split. And it's full of surprisingly interesting choices as you're drafting those cards, as much for trying to get another blue dragon in your hand, but you're also drafting those cards, oh, I don't care about the fact it's a blue dragon, I care about the fact that it would let me reprogram the book to be a three, and I'm about to have three red dragons. And so I want to be prepared for that, because if the book doesn't give me what I want, I can make it. So, there's some hidden depths to it, too, and I think it's something that is well worth checking out, folks. Number 17 on the list, Dragon Keepers. Okay, now, let's go on to number 16 on the list, Forest Shuffle. And, uh... Up till now, I've been mentioning how, hey, I've been knocking some things down for my wife. Uh, this one's knocked down more for me because this was tied for my wife's favorite game of the month. She gave this a rare 5 out of 5 stars. She loved it so much. And I suspect as more people get to play this game from Lookout Games, uh, a lot of people... Uh, this I could see this game making a uh, top 10 of the year list. Honestly, my wife, she said, yeah, this blows Wingspan away. And, um, you know, and it's up there with Earth for her. She loved it so much. What is it, though? This is a uh, card game where you have a bunch of cards in your hand, and these are car- there's three car- types of cards, broadly. Um, trees, and then uh, other plants and animals. Tr- uh, flora and fauna uh, plus trees. And if you play a tree in front of you, that becomes the epicenter that you can surround with other plants and animals. And um, it's a very, very sharp game. Uh, because there are so many different animals... Actually, wait. I'm trying to remember, are there other plants or is it all? Is it just trees and animals? I might be wrong. I'm thinking, I mean, I'm starting to get this mixed up in my head with Earth, quite frankly. I think I am. I think it's just trees and animals. And once you've planted a tree, um, which has its own way of scoring points, it can become the epicenter for up to four animals that you can play around it. And each one of those animals has its own unique way to score points. There are so many varieties. Set collection things, uh, things that trigger other things, things that want to be away from other things, things that want to be next to other things. Things. And as you uh, play, more and more trees, and get more and more animals around it, and you know, and sometimes some animals can even let you stack multiple animals in a given direction on a tree. Your possibility space explodes there are so many different ways you could chase after points in this game based on the types of trees you're getting based on the types of animals you're getting and all of it driven by a draft because to play uh, you know it, you know in the greatest race for the galaxy uh, you know style to play these cards to play these trees or to play these animals to your trees you have to give up other cards you have to discard them to the central board and then suddenly oh. I, I, you know, I need to play this card, but I'd have to give up this fox to do it, and I see you're specializing in foxes. Am I going to put that fox up there for you to get Lost City style? Ah! I'm nervous about it, but I need to play this um, because it's going to be central to my overalls. Do I hold on to this fox and keep it away from you and you know, wait until you don't care about foxes anymore and wait until I can play something else, or do I play this now? Um, and so that interaction, and particularly because one thing is if the central board gets completely overloaded with cards they all get wiped away. Just disappear. So your timing can be, oh yeah, I'll give up these cards to play this, knowing that you won't get them because it's going to wipe the entire thing. So there's a lot of brinksmanship and timing uh, involved with all of that as well. But um, if all that weren't enough, there's one other thing that makes this game really stand out. The animal cards um, are... Each animal card actually has two animals. Uh, Either there's a horizontal split, one on the left, one on the right, or there's a vertical split... I'm sorry, a vertical split, one on the left, and one on the right, or a horizontal split, an animal on top, an animal on bottom. So every animal card you have in your hand is actually two cards. And so if you've got a bunch of animals, you don't have five cards in your hand. You've got ten cards in your hand that you're trying to balance, knowing that, hey, if I play this butterfly, I'm saying goodbye to this toad. If I play this um, stag beetle, I'm saying goodbye to this bird. And um, that's cool that it just, again, this game overloads you, almost overwhelms you once you get a big hand of cards going with all the different options for how you can um, you know patchwork all these things together. My problem with the game, the thing that keeps it lower for me is that um, split card thing because I found it as I've got you know I don't know, six or seven cards, and I fan them all out. And I can, okay, this, I know I'm only seeing half of all the cards in my hand. And I've got to, and I can't just fan them the other way because they're split on the top and bottom and left and right. So I've got to just kind of like, okay, did, didn't I have a hedgehog? Where's my hedgehog in here? I can't find it. Is it on any of these cards? Did I get rid of it? Did I, did I, did I, did I. Did I did I discard my hedgehog and now I need it? Is it still back there? Oh wait, here it is. It's on the bottom of this card. Why didn't I see that? Or, or even worse, ah, it was on the bottom of this card that I tucked under so that I could get this uh, magpie on this particular tree. And I think it's great because it literally doubles the depth of your decision space because you've got so many ways to, um, you know, to 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 deploy these different animals. But. Oh man, it gets it gets cumbersome. And for me, I found myself kind of thinking oh, this is kind of a pain to try and keep track of double the number. And I almost wish they didn't do that. Um, or they, I mean, I'm not quite sure. I mean, it's it's not a bad thing. It's a great thing to have all this variety, all these options. I my wife again, my wife loved it, tied for her best game. I probably will be in her top ten of the year, quite frankly. Um, whereas for me, I just like. I, 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 I don't know. Maybe uh, maybe it's it's not you, uh, Forest Shuffle, it's me. I suspect a lot of people, as more uh, people get their hands on it, again, are going to love this, are going to agree with Jen. They're going to be saying, oh, Earth, that's yesterday's news. It's all about Forest Shuffle. Wingspan, haven't you tried Forest Shuffle? Um, because it does so much so well, so tightly and compactly and smartly. The design is great. And maybe it's just me that I have a hard time keeping double the number of animals in my head at one point. It was just a bit too overwhelming, which is why I knocked it down a few. And Forest Shuffle comes in at number 16 of the month. But mark my words, this is going to make top 10 lists. No toys about it. Okay. Then let's move on to number 15 on the list, Gnar, or K'Nar. I'm assuming it's a silent K, so I'm just going to go with Gnar, where we're assembling our Viking crew to explore new destinations uh, in the world and trade. And wow, this is a really, really sharp uh, card game. I like it a lot. What is it about? Well, um, we're trying to get the ideal uh, uh, Viking crew to really engage in trade. Uh, I don't don't think there's a lot of raiding in this game. It's more about, you know, just setting sail and, um, you know, going to foreign lands to engage in trade. But thematically, it's almost immaterial. This could have been any theme because this is a very abstract card game, but a brilliant central mechanism that pulls it all together. How does it work? Well, on your turn, you've got two cards in hand. Say you've got a red card and a purple card. You're going to play one of these to The table in front of you, and if I already have some red cards, if I play my new red card on top of my existing red cards, I will activate my new red card and every previous red card I've played. So you better believe I want to get more and more red cards, uh, so I can keep playing them, so I can just like do these wonderful combo chains of just gathering all kinds of resources that I'm going to need for later. But the problem is, I all I start my turn with two cards in my hand. I end my turn with two cards in my hand. So I play the red card trigger you know the chain of actions and then I look up on the main board and I can't grab any card I want up there. I have to grab the card from the red space. And it turns out in this picture that means I end up getting a green card. And I don't want green cards at all. They're useless to me. But I really wanted to trigger my multiple-stage red action knowing that I'd get a green card. Was it worth it? Well, now that I've got a green card in my hand, maybe I want to start collecting other green cards and building there, even if I'm putting my awesome red uh, you know, engine to the side. And that is brilliant. It is so sharp, so simple, and easy to understand, and just instantly works. I, I mean, I think... Players uh, just get pulled in really, really fast as you're making tough decisions right from the get-go because it's so satisfying hey the more I play these reds or the more I play these purples that's great but um, if then I end up going and getting a blue card and now I'm gonna have to shift I'm gonna pivot or am I gonna find ways to make lemonade out of 11 because there are things you can do there are abilities you have that can say oh I know I played a red card so I'm supposed to pull from the red but I'm gonna use this resource and pull from the yellow anyway so I can get another red card but I might want to use those resources for other things but folks I've only told you about half the game because like I said we're collecting a lot of resources and a lot of what we're using them for is to go on journeys to other lands where it says, oh, you need so many of X, Y, or Z to be able to go on this journey, um, You know, or so many cards played of a given color. And if once I do go on that journey, hey, all those cards I was building up to make that engine... They're gone. They all set sail to go to that new land. And I've lost all those cards. I've lost that little engine I've made, but I certainly got some time out of it so I could go and get that new land card. And the interesting thing is when I get these new land cards, they've got multiple actions on them that can be triggered. uh, that can actually be kind of a... Oh, let's see. Is there a picture of them lining up? Of course there's not. Come on, give me a picture of the land cards. Okay, here's a picture. So, the more lands we explore, you can see they start creating these columns of actions, and one of the resources I can get are these jewelries. If I give up a single jewelry, I activate everything in the leftmost column, both with whatever I started with on my ship and all the lands I've been to. But, say, in this picture, if I could give up two through a jewelry, I'd activate the first and the second column, and I'd get to unleash six additional bonuses that are going to help me out. That's awesome. So that's uh, you know there are two completely different resource gathering and harvesting and usage uh, uh, systems in the game that work really nicely together, and it's a blast. It's a lot of fun to play, and both Jen and I were very very impressed by it. And here's the deal, folks: any other month, this would have come in much much higher uh, I could certainly see myself uh, you know wanting to go back to this game and play it more now what I could also see though is at its heart I mean it's got this brilliant super simple super clean and elegant system I would love to see this system brought into a heavier game um, because at the end of the day all we're doing is just gathering resources to uh, you know to draft cards um, but this sim- system of hey play a card to trigger an action but then get a card I don't want and then try to figure out what to do with it, I could see this in like more of a midweight Euro and Alexander Fister kind of thing, and boom, we'd be talking game of the year type stuff. As it is, uh, you've got this brilliant system driving a very light, simple, fast-playing game that is a lot of fun, but probably not quite as big as what Jen and I are looking for as a general rule. It's a little smaller, uh, 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 but you know, really sharp. And I mean, gosh. If it were more than just me and Jen, if I needed to play, if I wanted to on a regular basis play a really smart card drafting game with like three or four people, uh this kind of level of depth would be perfect for fast play. But for me and Jen, it was a little bit on the light side as a two-player-only game. Not that it didn't work. It's just, I think we'd want something. Generally speaking, a little bit heavier. And I hope someday to see the brilliant card play of Nar in a bigger, heavier game. Um, well, who's the publisher of this? DTT. Who was it? It is Bombix. Bombix. Give me the NAR sequel, or actually just even give me an expansion to NAR that adds like an extra board where, I don't know, we're doing a little bit something more, moving around from world to world, something a little bit more than just set collection, which is basically what all this drives to. One of the smartest set collection games I've played in quite a while. Uh, but still, I just want a little bit more to bump this up from its current spot, number 15 on the list, NAR. Alrighty, then let's move on to number 14 on the list, Nucleum, which I know is going to come as quite a shock to a lot of people because I think this is going to be in a lot of people's top 10 of the year. Uh, the latest design from... Oh, and what a combo. Uh, Simone Luciani, one of my all-time favorites, and Dave Turchi, uh, one of my all-time faves too, and they have come up with something really, really great. It's interesting, a lot of people liken this to a mix of brass and barrage, and honestly, I don't see the barrage. This is not a mean, in-your-face, screw-your-opponent-over-game like barrage is, but I totally see the brass uh, influence and maybe the economic energy generation of barrage, just not the really cut throatedness cut cut-your-opponents-off type stuff. This is a really, really sharp game. It's driven by a very, very simple system. On your turn, you've got a collection of these little uh, dominoes with two powers on them, and you can just play one of the dominoes to do those abilities. But instead, the better thing is, can you take those dominoes and put them somewhere on the board as a link in a rail chain connecting different cities. If you can do that and you can match the colors of the cities to the colors of the two sides of your domino, then you get to do the domino actions, which you, which you, you could just say, I'm just going to play this domino and just do the stuff and my turn is over. Or I can build a rail, use the actions if the colors match up, and then I own that rail, which means I'm starting to develop a network of influence in neighboring cities cities. And that's the name of the game, because I need to get control of uranium mines so that I can ship those uranium mines to processing centers. And those might be processing centers that belong to somebody else, that I that get a benefit every time I send my uranium to them. But then I use that uranium in um, in uh, newly uh, converted changing coal plants into nuclear plants, because this is a kind of steampunk alternate universe where we discovered nuclear power 100 years earlier, and uh, you know it, it's phasing out coal as we speak in this game. So uh, you know it's it's a multi-tier process of build up the networks of stuff so and you'll build up buildings inside these cities as well the ones I've connected to with my rails so that I can uh, take coal from outside of country or uranium from in country to move them to power plants to then move that power to whatever city needs it so that I can charge up uh, the buildings that are there and score huge points the buildings by the way that I built right Um, and it's good. It's a really, really, really brilliant game. A big, heavy, complex beast. A long game, too. Um, I mean, you know, it says 90 minutes minimum. And you know, 90 minutes minimum on Board Game Geeks really means two hours minimum. And that's for a two-player game, at least at the speeds Jen and I play. And, uh, yeah, it's really sharp. And then on top of that, there are, you know, all the different types of buildings you can build. And, um, I mean, I've just... There's so much to this game. It's It's... It is a work of design art, quite frankly. So, with all that in mind, why does it come in at number 14 when I'm sure a lot of people are going to say, hey, this is one of my 10 favorite games of the year? It's just... it's For us, it's too much. It's too big. Uh, it's too long. And another thing, this is something I'm starting to discover more and more. I am falling out of love with route-building-slash-delivery games. Games where you spend a lot of time building up rail routes or... You know, transportation networks, or whatever mess it, whether it's a bunch of boats all over the place or whatever, and then spend an equal amount of time focused on trying to leverage those routes to move goods from one place to another. Once upon a time, we really enjoyed that stuff. I think Jen and I are fine of falling out of that, out of love with that more and more. <clears throat> I recently got rid of brass, folks. Uh, last year, I said, yeah, I'm not, I can't even put my finger on why I just don't feel like playing brass anymore. And I'm about to get rid of railways of the world, too. So this has nothing to do with Nucleum, which is a brilliant, super smart design. Uh, and if you like the style of route building and then use those routes to distribute goods, to score points by completing objectives, this is maybe one of the best ones out there. But it's just the best. It's something that I'm not finding I enjoy as much anymore, which is why Nucleum came in at number 14 this month. All right, then let's move on to number 13. It's Leaf. Now, this is a uh, lovely little game all about tiling. But, you know, so, you know, tile layers, you think tile layers, you think, oh, putting squares down next to squares like Carcassonne or putting hexes down next to other hexes like... Cascadia. Um, But not in this game. Nope. In this game, it's actual leaves, dried up, very colorful, beautiful leaves that are falling to the forest floor that are the tiles we're laying. And this creates such an interesting um, organic feel to it because you've got, you know, all kinds of different shaped leaves that have multiple tips on them. And when you put a new leaf onto the table, you're trying to connect as many tips as possible between the new leaf you're putting down with the leaves that are already there. And the more tips you can connect, the bigger chain of actions you will get to do. And that is super satisfying. It's a lot of fun to play. Uh, Jen and I both enjoyed it. Quite a bit. Um, it is a bit challenging, though. Uh, you know, there is something to be said for hey, I know exactly how this square or how this hex tile will lay next to other tiles. And Jen and I did find as we were playing this game and we were trying to anticipate. Right. Okay. Um, with the cards I've got in hand, I could play. Uh, I, I could play uh, this leaf, or I could play this leaf over here. Or I could play that leaf over there. Right okay I, I can see this leaf has four tips on it but how many of those tips will actually touch leaves out there and we were constantly I mean and normal I mean this is something my wife does a lot a, a lot she has a hard time visualizing tile laying and she's always having to pick them up and move them around and rotate them and see how they play out especially in like polyomino tile games but in this game I found I was having to do it a lot too because I you know because of the weird organic shapes of these leaves trying to figure out right exactly how are they gonna interact uh, created for us I mean it I, you know, it's it's a fast game. It's a smooth-playing game, but it did become a little bit of a barrier to entry. Like, they were constantly right, right okay, I know I want this because it's... I got, hey, finally, I got, I've got a card in my hand that lets me play the big super one, two, three, four, five, uh, six-tipped leaf. But... Where can I put it? And now I'll have to systematically rotate it and try to put it everywhere around the board to figure out where it would go. And um, we spent, I think, more time than we would like trying to figure out exactly how to get these leaves on the table and less on what the leaves would actually do when we got them out there. Because, you know, when my five-tip leaf, if four of my tips touch the uh, tips of seven other leaves, then boom, I get to do seven actions. But it was almost like, well, what are those actions? I don't know. I was just so happy to find a way to get this leaf to fit in this weird jigsaw puzzle um, of tiling. And I I really, really enjoyed it. And I really applaud the uniqueness of it. But it was interesting in that um, it just wasn't quite as smooth as uh, most of our tiling experiences because of the extra trickiness of trying to figure out how to expand this. Now, there's a lot of fun stuff. There's, I mean, because when you do get a leaf down and it touches all those other leaves and you trigger three or four or five actions, I mean, those actions are, um, you know, collecting animal cards and we're trying to do set collection to get the animals hibernating. It was, um, oh man, there's so many things. Or, you know, collecting more cards so we can uh, play more leaves or trying to play multiple leaves together. And, I mean, you know, there was just a lot of really cool stuff. But, I mean, I'm looking at myself right now trying to figure out, how does this leaf fit with these other leaves? I'm not quite sure. And it just takes a little while to figure that out. And I am sure over time that will become second nature to just be able to say, oh, I know how this four uh, tip leaf works. I know how this uh, this uh, leaf that has half of its ends, you know, completely cut off and just like completely, it gets rid of expansion one direction. You'd get the hang of it. But I mean, it is, uh, you know, there, there's, It's not a barrier to entry, but it did kind of slow down the game for us a little bit because we spent too much time just thinking about not the strategy of how we wanted to leverage our leaves, but just how can we even play these things? So that got a little bit in our way um, and was an otherwise a brilliant, beautiful game that we still enjoyed. And again, folks, I mean, any other month, this would have made my top 10 of the month. I'm just saying, why didn't it make my top 10 of the month this month? Uh, Well, that's why. And that's why uh, Leaf comes in at number 13. All then let's go on to number 12, Tiling, laying um, art beauty uh, is all here for us in art society. Now, I don't think there are a lot of images that really show... You know what? Actually, yeah, um, uh, Steph Hodge... Uh, uh, Steph Hodge and Mike, Steph and Michael, thank you so much. They did a run through of this. I'm just putting their video on screen. Everybody go check out Steph's channel. Um, you know, it's, it's absolutely fantastic. Uh, you know, what was it? All the games with Steph and let's see, let me just jump ahead to a little bit further in their game. So each player has this gigantic wall in their mansion that they're trying to fill up with beautiful art right? Can I make this picture a bit bigger? If I go onto YouTube, yeah, there we go. It'll be a bit bigger here. So they're trying to fill up uh, their wall of art, but there are restrictions. You can, I mean, if you get a landscape, you can't put it next to another landscape. If you get a portrait, you can't put next to another portrait, that kind of stuff. But the frames around the art that you're drafting for, you do want to get those next to each other. So you want to get the uh, silver frames next to the other silver frames. So there are interesting and challenging restrictions. You can see uh, what a great job Uh, Michael is doing here, getting them all, and Steph, oh, she's getting all these little holes filled in because she's trying to get everything uh, fitting correctly. But, um, as you're going along, you can also get these little accessory tiles to fill in all those holes, which I'm sure is basically what Steph is planning on because those can be a lot of extra points too. So, the tiling in this game is a lot of fun. Very sharp, very clever, with a few simple rules they create really interesting and challenging ways to puzzle, jigsaw puzzle, all this stuff together. But how do we get these tiles? Well, the interesting thing is at the beginning of every round, the lead player chooses a set of tiles that everybody is going to bid on in an auction. Right. And so it looks like right now they're trying to figure out what tiles do I want to put on auction? And boom, they decide to make three uh, size six tiles. But it might have been, hey, I want some size three tiles and a size seven tile or whatever. And so you put your tiles out there, and then everybody has a deck of cards numbered one to 20, if I recall correctly. Everybody picks one, simultaneously reveals it, and that's your bid in the art auction to get these. And whoever bids highest gets first dibs on those, and then whoever bids lower gets later. And so you've got the tough choice. Hey, um, you know, no you put that stuff out there but oh my gosh you revealed the thing i want and um, am i going to let you have that how how am i going to bid so it's a it's a simple very fast and elegant one pass bidding system that's it's really sharp and the interesting thing is, there's always one more piece of art on the auction block than there are a number of players, because whichever piece of art doesn't get taken, that goes to the public museum. And what that does is, it increases the value of that kind of art, whether it's a portrait, or a landscape, or an abstract, or whatever it might be. And so, um, you know, I know leaving this one behind might be making something more valuable that you've leveraged because you have more portraits than me. I have to take this portrait so I can catch up with you with portraits, but I really want this landscape because I don't have any place I can put a portrait on right now because I can't put portraits next to other portraits or I um, I want to match the different... Uh, you know, uh, uh, frames around my art next to each other. Or there's another cool thing too. On your map, on your wall that you're trying to fill, there's an eyeline where you're trying to put the type of painting that you anticipate is going to be the most valuable at the end of the game. And can you fill that up with that? And then will that be the most valuable? Well, that's up to you and the other players. Do you hedge your bets and put all kinds of stuff in the eye line, or do you pick, okay, it's probably going to be one of these two. So I'll just try to fill my eyeline with only these two types of things. So that's another element. This game is great, folks. The production value is fantastic. All the original cute little art that's reminiscent of real artistic works. uh, The dual layer boards. I've never seen this before. The dual layer box cover is really, really nice also. And it's a fun, sharp, great tile layer and a really good auction game too. My only real complaint is the official rules as um, Steph and Michael are showing here is after you play your paddle, say what your bid was, it's supposed to cover up all your old bids. And that Jen and I did not like because we did not want to try to memorize. Right, have you played? How many high cards have you played versus low cards? We found it was much more fun to actually splay our cards out so I could at a glance say, right, if I play this 15, I can see you still got a 17 and your 19. How likely are you to do that? I feel like I'm pretty safe. Do you really value this enough to use one of your last two cards? Because I can see you played your 20 and your 18 and your 16. So, I'm feeling pretty good about this 15 um, but you're not supposed to do that you're supposed to keep all that information secret and then anybody who has a better memory is going to win quite frankly because they'll generally have a better idea of um, you know how likely their bid is to succeed and they can therefore successfully bid lower more regularly um, you know I only warn you if you're playing with somebody who has a really good memory for this stuff and especially if you're playing a two- player game it's gonna I mean Honestly, I just don't see any reason not to come up with Here's a Rado variant for you, folks. When you play your paddles out, splay them so you can at a glance see all the numbers that have already been played so you can make more informed decisions about how you should bid in the future. Um, That's how Jen and I, we got about halfway through our game, we're really kind of miserable with all this memory stuff. And then we thought, okay, let's just lay them all out. And then it really came to life and we really, really enjoyed it a lot. This would be in my top 10 um, for the month. No two ways about it maybe, I'm guessing, maybe my number 6 instead of my number 12. It's gotten bumped down a little bit because I do not like the memory element of the bidding. And I don't know why. I wish the rulebook had a, for an advanced variant don't cover up your old bids with your new one. Just lay them out splayed so everybody can see what everybody's previous bids have been. I can see why they didn't want to do that because it slows the game down and it makes it more crunchy as everybody's trying to guess, or not not guess, but figure out exactly what's the likelihood you'll outbid me if I bid a 4 or a 7 or a 12. But as a two-player game, oh, it so elevated the experience and made it rocket to the top for us. But even still, Played with a little bit of, well, I don't know. I think you've been high a lot. I'm not really sure. I'll just see what happens. Even still, it's a great game. Number 12 of the month. Art Society. Okay, then let's move on to number 11, Cargo Empire. Now, this was a uh, sponsored preview uh, that I did for a game that is crowdfunding, or will be coming to crowdfunding soon. And it's interesting. I talked a little bit ago about how recently... Uh, When I was talking about Nucleum, I've noticed I'm losing interest more and more with the idea of building a lot of routes and then using them to deliver a lot of goods. Cargo Empire is one of the games that has made me realize that here's what I want. I don't want to do both of those things in a game. I either want to spend all my time building the routes and focusing on that, like Carnegie, or on the flip side, in a way I've never seen before, Cargo Empire says, no, all the routes are already there all you're worried about in this game is the delivery. Is the trying to say, okay, of all the routes that are on this map to get the cubes from this city that I've got a contract with to this other city that I'd like to have a contract with this, well, heck, it's on the other side of Europe. So how can I do it? Well, I look at my hand of cards. I've got two trucks, a boat, and a train. That's all I've got. Can I use them? Well, you know what? If I play one of these trucks to move the cargo down um, to the port at Marseille, and then I use my one boat, and I can get that up to Oslo, then I could use my train and my last truck to move the last three steps i need to get it over to warsaw and i'll play all my cards and i will get this good delivered from one side of the map to the other and that's an awesome puzzle that's what you're doing turn after turn trying to puzzle out based on the transportation cards you have in hand right where do i want to deliver from where do i want to deliver to and with the transportation cards i have in hand can i make that happen And that's a fun puzzle that you get to grind on over and over and over again. But that's only half of it, because once you make the delivery... um, we have these progress meters for our ships, our trucks, and our trains. And the more we use train cards, the more our train moves up on the the overall progress meter. The more we use our boats, the more the boats move up. And the thing is we want these to move up because as they uh, travel on these little progression tracks, that's how we unlock more cards. And because if I use... I mean, that was great. I had a really powerful turn. I got to move all my transportation up because I played a lot of cards and I made a delivery. But now I'm out of cards. Next turn I won't be able to do anything. But because I played all these cards, and especially if I use Target, if I get, if I make deliveries to targeted cities where I have private contracts, or there's a group of public contracts we can deal with as well, then I can get bonus advancement on the track. Because, hey, if I can just move my train three more steps, I'll get another train and another truck card. And with those two, I'll be able to make the next deliver I want to do. And that means on the after I've done that, I can move my train and my truck up again. And if I move my truck up one more, I'll unlock another bonus uh, you know, objective that I'm trying to pursue. Or I can get a private contract with a city. It's good stuff, folks. I was very, very impressed by this game. Uh, because... It does pick-up-and-delivery in a way I've never seen before, that quite frankly is superior to just about everything I've ever seen. It's it's one of the coolest, most innovative pick-up-and-delivery games I've ever seen, and uh, it's made me completely reevaluate how I feel about the entire genre. Uh, It comes in at number 11 this month, and you'll see it uh, crowdfunding soon. Cargo Empire. Okay. Okay. Then, let's move on to number 10, which is actually a triple feature. It is um, the first three expansions that were released for Rolling Realms. The, ro- the meta uh, commentary, Rolling Realms the Rolling Realms promo pack plus Rolling Realms the Terra Mystica pack and Rolling Realms the Libertalia pack. These were the first three packs that were released for one of the best rolling rights there is, quite frankly. Um, be- and the reason it's one of the best roll and there is is because every time you play a game of Rolling Realms, you you are gonna play nine different separate roll and rights uh, sequentially over the course of the game. And the original game came with a bunch of unique roll and rights tied to you know famous games from Stonemaier, which is you know the publisher of Rolling Realms. But ever since this came out, other publishers are teaming up with um, Stonemeyer Games, to make promo packs of their games. So, first of all, a promo pack of Rolling Realms that is themed to Rolling Realms, which means, hey, it's a little mini Roll and Write game where I've got three dice and I'm trying to ensure wherever possible I get unique values on every face of the die to score more points. That's nice. But, um, you know, uh, what's it? Terra Mystica, Stonemaier has nothing to do with Terra Mystica, but they worked with the Terra Mystica folks, I guess a Capstone or something like that, and came up with a new little uh, roll-and-write game where I'm rolling and using the dice to try to make um, connected lines from one side of the map to the other and get to different um, you know, high-scoring areas in between by crossing bridges. And it's like, boom! This is like a totally new game. And then there's the third one, which is based on Libertalia, which is all about trying to get the um, dice used that will create an ascending series... Um, of, uh, of pirates to play. So you're trying to get them put in... But this is not like you have to play them one after another. You can jump ahead. If I put a 3 next to the 3 that's already on there, that's a 33. And now whatever's below that, I mean, I could put a 25 below that, um, and I can't put a 35 because that would be higher. It's another sharp, fun little roll-and-write minigame, and all three of these just so beautifully plug in to regular Rolling Realms. And I already loved Rolling Realms. And here's the deal, folks. I got to play three of these. These are the first three that ever come out. By now, plenty of these have come out and so there's 17 more i've got to get and i enjoyed these so much i feel like i need to start seeking out each one of these promo packs i believe is like five bucks so i'm probably going to be making an investment pretty soon because i want more rolling realms variety uh because the rolling realms first three expansions of uh the rolling realms promo the Terramistica mystica promo and the libertalia promo proved to me it works like a dream and it's awesome stuff okay so that was number 10 on the list. Now let's move on to number nine, Philharmonics. And you know, folks, I apologize. This should have been in a roundup a couple of months ago. I apologize to the publisher. I think it's uh, Acrona, if I recall correctly, as the publisher. Uh, this campaign, this crowdfunding campaign, because it was a sponsored uh, preview I did, is long over. Again, I apologize. I apologize. I, I should have talked about this sooner. But you can go check my run-through and my final thoughts. Suffice to say, this is a brilliant worker placement game about players trying to manage a space orchestra, flying around from galaxy to galaxy, getting the best music out there and trying to put on the symphonies that the people on different planets want to hear, especially the rich patrons who will give you all kinds of special powers. It's a brilliant new twist on worker placement. Uh, very, very fun and interesting with a lot of dynamics, shifting up of the worker placement board. There's area majority stuff, there's set collection stuff. It's a huge game, it's got a lot going on. And I should have talked about it a couple of months ago, but I'm mentioning now it's my number nine of the month, Phil Harmonics. Okay. Number eight of the month is another sponsored preview for Nocturne. This is the latest from Flatout Games, and my gosh, Flatout is on such a tear. They can seem to do no wrong. Um, you know, really caught people's eye with Cascadia, and um, you know, and then Fit to Print is just now coming out. People are falling in love with that. I love Point City. I mean, they've done several games, and I think I think this might be Jen's favorite game they've ever done so far. What is it? It is an auction game where we are mystical foxes in a magical forest trying to bid on grabbing tiles not to do any tiling, but just for set collection. Well, there's two things. Each tile that we could grab has a different way of scoring. Mushrooms score with other mushrooms. Feathers score with other feathers. Uh, They all have different unique ways. Some tiles let you duplicate other tiles or let you draw blind and pick tiles from the draw pile. So, um, there's all kinds of different tiles we could grab that we can score in different ways based on the tiles themselves, but also each tile has little icons on it that if we get enough of these icons we will fulfill magical concoctions which are additional sources of points we're trying to do so Every tile is effectively a multi-scoring tile, depending on how you can get it. So, but the real crux of the gameplay is, how do we get them? And like I said, it's an auction. Uh, what happens is, let me jump back to the beginning, before a lot of stuff had been grabbed. Somebody puts a, um, a token out, puts out the number one token. That's them putting a bit of one on whatever tile they just placed it on, right? Now, the next player says, oh, well, okay, I don't want you to have that. I'm going to raise you and go up and put a tile, uh, uh, you know, a... Um, what do you even call it, a, a bid on the next tile adjacent. And then, okay, I'm going to bid on the next one, and then you're going to bid on the next one. And eventually, the bidding will get too high, everybody else will pass, and whoever bid highest, nowhere near where the bidding started. The bidding started over here, but it ended over there. So somebody wins that tile, they start using it for set collection, they, or maybe it has some special power, you know, or maybe they just needed to fill their concoction, um, but they won that. But the chip that they bid with, they've lost it. It stays on the board and it is out of hand. And all the players who didn't win, they can bring all their chips back. So in a future round, they'll be more powerful in future auctions. But if you want, on the way back from bringing your chips back, you can donate some of them to the berries, or the, the sprite forest, which is to say, you can you can bring all your chips back so you're still more powerful in future bids, or you can give them away to get first dibs on a side collection of tiles that will get resolved halfway through the game, and then again at the end of the game. So yes, if you're willing to sacrifice one of those, and the higher the ones you sacrifice, the better, because you'll get first dibs as opposed to second dibs or third dibs. But again, you've just made yourself weaker for the next um, uh, bidding session, and the the next bidding session is going to start from wherever the previous one was as players just bid and bid and start um you know making these snakes of bids all over the place and before too long more and more tiles are gone and that means there are more and more spaces in the forest they're just filled up with uh, you know the remnants and we we have fewer and fewer things we can bid with but there's something else interesting is happening folks all the bids that are still left on you know that have been left behind that becomes an area majority game too, because every time you play, there's going to be three different objectives um, the players are racing on for, like having the biggest area of control, or having different areas control, or all kinds of stuff. So this game, well, again. Flat out can do no wrong, and they've done no wrong with this. You can expect my run-through for this to be coming uh, in the month of October, and we've done this run-through in a way unlike anything I've ever done in over a decade of doing this channel. We've never done anything quite like this. I think people are really going to enjoy the way the main run-through and the extended, because we're going to show you an entire game from start to finish, and I cannot wait for you to see it. This game is so much fun, ranked really, really high for my wife, Jen, and for me, too. It's number eight of the month. Nocturne. Right. Now, let's move on to number seven, Far Away. Um, Oh my goodness, folks. Uh, This is such a sharp, sharp little uh, card game. Um, And, I mean, this is... A tight, fast playing little game where on your turn, you've got some cards, you're gonna play them out in front of you from left to right. And you're just gonna, every turn, you're gonna play more and more cards um, from left to right until uh, the game is over because everybody has played, I forget what the number is, I wanna say it's like seven, Somebody until people have played seven cards in a single row from left to right, and then we go to final scoring. Um, and you know, in between that, there are cards on the table, and uh, we're playing an initiative game, kind of like Gloomhaven. Basically, I've got cards in my hand, you've got cards in your hand. We both simultaneously pick and reveal at the same time what card we are going to play on a given turn. And um, I'm picking that because that's the next card I want to play in my line for reasons that will come up. But also, the higher the number on the card, the faster initiative I will have, which means I will get first dibs on the new cards that are in the center of the table because hey, maybe I don't care so much about playing this card right now but I want to guarantee I get that card that's further along in the uh uh, you know, in, in in the queue, and I don't want you to grab it because it'd be a really big deal for you or it's perfect for me or whatever. But anyway, so is it? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. It looks like it's eight. I believe it's eight cards. Once players have played eight cards from left to right, an interesting thing happens. As we were playing cards from left to right, every time we played a card, it was getting us access to more cards, but it was also getting us access just to resources and whatnot that we might need, being able to unlock little artifacts, side cards, and stuff like that. But ultimately, we played our cards from left to right, as was done in this game by Eric. Martin himself apparently or at least he uploaded the picture. to score the game, what we do is we it's um, last in first out. whatever card was the last card we played will be the first card we score. So we play them and harvest them from um, left to right, but then we score them from right to left. And what this means is the very very first card I play, I'm sorry. I have a card in my hand. I can see, oh, this card wants me to have lots of green cards, right? And so, I can. I, and I, if I can keep an eye out for lots of green cards, and over the course of the game, if I can play a lot of green cards, well, the last card I want to play, which means it's the first one I score, is going to be the green cards. Except, oh wait, I've got it completely backwards. I've got it completely backwards. Um... Because what happens is, once we get to the end, and we played, I'm pretty sure it's the eight cards, at least it looks like it's in this picture, That's the eight cards, right? Um, once we've done that, um, we flip all of our cards face down, right? Then we start revealing them one by one from right to left. So if I was planning on a lot of green cards, that's the first card I play. And by putting that down as the very first card I play, it's going to be the final card that is revealed during final scoring. And if it says, hey, get three points per green card, That means I set myself a goal for the rest of the game when I'm playing them to get lots of green cards. Because the last card I play, like in this case, whoever played this 65 says, hey, get three points for green or orange cards. That'll be the first thing they reveal, and it'll be worth nothing to them. And so that was a terrible place to play that card. They wanted to play that card somewhere to the left of where all the greens and oranges are. Um, and you can see, right after they got an orange, and so they've totally gotten it backwards. This is so brilliant, and it's so fun and simple, but puzzly. Jen, my wife, uh, who said this was tied for her for her game of the month, and it's one of her rare five-star games, which means it'll likely be one of her favorite ten games of the year. This will almost guaranteed be in my wife's top ten of the year, quite frankly. It's so good, and I think it's great, too. Uh you know, it's coming in my seven of the month. Um the because you get your starting hand of cards, you see what cards are out there, and you know more cards are gonna come out throughout the game, and it's kind of like or reminds us both of Agricola. In Agricola, at the beginning of the game, you get a handful of cards and you make a plan for your entire game, and then you spend the whole game trying to stick to that plan. It's very rare the games do that. More most games have a lot more tactical elements that okay, well, I don't I'll try and do some stuff. We'll see how things work. We'll see what comes up. But no, in this game, you have a plan right from the get-go because as soon as you play a card, you know everything past that has to feed into that card when we're scoring in the opposite direction so that that card can get the most out of it but it's not just that one card it's all eight of those cards that you want to create a cascading series of cards that every single one of them feeds the card to the left and consumes what's in the cards to the right and that's super cool super duper cool uh, I mean, we like it a lot. It's a brilliant, brilliant, uh, fun little game. So much richness in a game that will last you like 20 minutes. And, um, and then you'll just immediately want to play it again and see how things evolve. And I haven't even talked about it. I haven't talked about the artifacts and other stuff. But suffice to say, folks, far away, like I said, um, mark my words, it'll be in my wife's top 10 of the year when we do that later on. and um, And it's in my top 10 for the month as well. Super impressed by number seven on the list far away. All right. Now, let's go on to number six, Printing Press, which is a sequel of sorts to a game that came out either last year or the year before Gutenberg, which I very much liked. It was about you know the early days of the invention of the printing press and starting out. That's what this one is too. But the gameplay is pretty much nothing like Printing Press. This is a card drafting and tile laying game where over the course of three weeks, we are trying to make the best page, uh, printout page we can, and it's done uh, through a bunch of really wonderful mechanisms, starting with very smart uh, entwined drafting, because at the beginning of each of the three weeks, there are going to be, let's see if I can get to this part of the game, oh, where is it? Yeah, there is going to be a set of three frames and three goal cards, and everybody's going to pick a frame and a goal, and then they're going to spend several turns drafting all these little strips Um, trying to get the right ones, laying them out... Uh, so let's jump back a little bit because uh, there's a play that my wife and I did. It's not available publicly, but if you're a supporter of the show, thank you very much for supporting the show. You can watch me and Jen play this. So you're trying to stack these little one by three strips to fulfill whatever the objective is, not only of the objective card you got, but also the objectives on the frame itself. So every round you've got one, two, um, three, four different objectives, and you only have a few rounds of dr- drafting these strips, trying to get them to lay over. Sometimes covering up icons you thought you needed with other. Icons you needed more, trying to fill those goals. And um, using your own special little one-by-ones <coughs> or... If you end up drafting a card you can't use, dumping it to turn it into more little one by ones to be able to you know uh, you know patch a hole that you couldn't quite get, and then eventually at the you know whatever kinds of crazy mixed up uh, sloppy page it looks like you've made, eventually once all the drafting is done, you then surround it with your frame, and it's only the three by three that's in the frame that you actually score, and everything hanging out over the edge doesn't matter; it gets snipped off. It's freaking cool. Jen and I really enjoyed this game a lot. It was a lot of fun. Uh, players get unique special powers based on real printers like um, you know, Gutenberg and others of the time. And, uh, you know, there's, 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 there's definitely some push your luck. Like, I'm going to try and go for this. It might fail. Also, you're not out of it. If you do, like, really terribly on one round, that's okay. You're just setting yourself up to be able to do much, much better in future rounds. Because there's short term scoring you can get, but then there's also long term in-game scoring as well. Because 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 in each of the three weeks, you will declare one feature of your um, pages to be a thing that you'll score bonus points for at the end of the game. So you could be less about trying to actually finish the objectives on the frame that you picked up as part of the opening, and you could instead be all about, no, I'm just trying to make sure I get enough of these things so I'll really clean up at the end of the game. It's got a lot going on. Um, my only real complaint about it, I would have changed one rule. If you're trashing a tile to be able to get another little one-by-one, one, you draw a blind from the bag and you got to place it right then. I don't understand why that is. I don't understand why we can't draw from the bag and say, yeah, I'll hold on to this until I need it because maybe I'll draw something I don't like. I would almost be inclined to house rule it and maybe, and you know, this probably would push up at least one more space maybe two more spaces in my overall if we were not required to use those tiles the moment that we trash a we, we trash a a drafted card and we say oh give me the tiles and oh i don't like this one either great but i'd be super happy if oh but i'll use this later this will definitely come in handy later you can still use them for just increasing your speed and efficiency so it's okay i don't complain too much but it could have been even a tiny bit better and made it a tiny bit uh richer but even still I'm super impressed. Number six of the month, uh, easily, a lot of fun, but could have been even better with a slight tweak, is Printing Press. Okay, now we move on to number five of the month, House of Cats. Oh my gosh, we are, and now we are getting into potential top tens of the year, quite frankly, folks. I, I don't know. I mean, there's a bunch of games at Spiel that I'm sure will probably push up. But currently, as of today, right now, House of Cats is one of the ten best games I've played this year. But again, there's, 20 or so games that uh, might supplant it that are coming out at Essen Spiel. But why is House of Cats so great? Well, first of all, let's not bury the lead. It's from designer Christian uh, Asmonds and Osby who's done a lot of really great stuff including other really wonderful roll and rights, One of my favorite designers really. But this was a big surprise to me. He's teaming up with William Attia, the designer of Kalis one of the all-time granddaddy super Euro designers. Um, You know, we haven't seen him for years. I mean, he did Spirium a few years ago, which was, or not, gosh, half a decade ago, he did Spirium, which was, as far as I was concerned, was superior to Kalis, which I know is... Blasphemy for a lot of people. Then we haven't seen him do very much. And now he comes back with a roll and write, and he reminds us why he is one of the greatest designers of all time, because this is one of the greatest roll and writes of all time, as far as I'm concerned. This silly little roll and write about making a house for cats, the house of cats. Now, what is it? Okay, let me try and summarize. First of all, the game comes with four different sheets of paper, four unique levels, four different houses. Each of them have different ways that they change the fundamental scoring and rules of the game. So there's a nice bit of variety built in, but that's not where the real variety comes from. Because, well, first of all, let me explain the game. It's a roll and write, right? You roll four dice and each player is going to pick independently, bingo style, three of those dice and they have to put them adjacent to each other. So in this case, I might say, hey, I'm going to take the three and the cat and the mouse or I'm going to take the five and the cat and the three or something like that. And then I have to put them adjacent to each other on my my layout uh, for the house I'm trying to make, right? I think there's a picture here showing a, a finished house. Yeah. So the thing is, this is a finished house where it looks like, oh look, there's a, a size four room. It's four fours all next to each other. It's a size four room, and that meant it's it got it unlocked the the level four ability. That's all really great. But it's not like it came out that way. It's not like somebody said, oh, look, four fours, I'll take them. No, somebody, whoever did this at one point said, you know what, I'm going to take a three, a mouse, and a four. And then later on, they got a five, five, four, and they said, hey, let's put this five, five, four over here because we're trying to make some fives over there, and we're trying to make more fours over there. And then eventually we had uh, a five, five, four, and hey, let's um have this five go next to this five because we can maybe make another five over here and put the four. And in the meantime, we've done it. We've gotten all the fours together, and then we get to activate the 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 size four room ability. And then not for nothing, hey, why was I, if all I care about is numbers to make size two, three, fours, or five rooms to unlock the different powers, why do I care about the mice and the cats that I can place? Well, it varies. Each one of the different layouts, like this is the simple one. Every time I put a mouse down, um, wherever it is, I eat the cheese on the row and column, and I'm trying to get all those. So you're just trying to spread your mice out. But there's other ones like, hey, in a given area, Mice are worth nothing, but as soon as you put one cat in that area, suddenly every mouse is worth points, and so you're trying to get the cats and the mice together in in basically four different ways, depending on which level you're playing on. So that's all very nice. All of that makes for a really lovely, uh, you know, um, middle of the pack rolling right, that would probably be a keeper for us. But that's not what makes this game special. What makes this game special is, as part of setup, uh, we grab a handful of these power tiles. There's a bunch of them. And what we're going to do is, we are going to grab uh, a random assortment of them. Let me go back. I think you'll show it here. And we are going to slot them to program what a size 2, a size 3, a size 4, and a size 5 room will do. And every time you play, it's going to be a different combination of special powers associated with different size rooms. And so you can get radically different feeling games if a really powerful power ends up on a 2. And then all of a sudden, players are wanting to make size 2 rooms and activate that power. Or the, the best power is on 4s, so we're trying to make 4s. Or, hey, the making 3s and 5s, these two powers really combine well together. So I'm really trying to make that happen. This is the secret sauce. I mean, you know, I mean, it's something that roll and rights can often have a problem with. Yeah, this is a lot of fun, but really the only variability of this game is what will the dice roll? And I'm still doing the same thing over and over again every time I play. Like, uh, I mean, there's so many of them. And where does the variety come from? This game has four completely different maps built in, but then each one of those maps has what? Four times three times two times one different combinations. Um,. We are, no, six times five times four times three. I think there are six powers. So six times five times four times three different variations because it matters whether the um, get to move dice around, or, you know, get to shuffle numbers from one place to another is in the three spot versus the five spot. So this game has more replayability built into it than, you know, baked into it than things like rolling, uh, Rolling Realms or, you know, Welcome to the Moon. It blows my mind. And honestly, I would like to see this idea brought in where, yeah, you know, we're so used to seeing, "Hey, when you do a certain thing, unlock this special power, use that special power." But what if these games made those powers themselves modular, so that you get rewarded with different things for doing the same thing every game, whether it's, you know, complete a set or build a building or finish a room full of cats and mice? Wow. This game is something really special. It is leaps and bounds above most rolling rights. I think it's one of the best rolling rights I've played. It's probably my top five rolling rights of all time. And again, Should I be surprised? You've got one of the uh, the designer of one of the greatest modern board games of all time, Kalis. and as far as I'm concerned, another one, Spirium, working um, with a really successful modern designer who has done great, great things in the roll and write space. Avenue is phenomenal. Um, And so is, uh, was it, Riverside. And so they came together, Atia and Osby, and made something really special. My number five of the month. House of Cats, which honestly, when I sat down to play it, I did not think that this was going to be ranking so high for me—a potential nominee for my top ten of the year. House of Cats. Okay, uh, let's move on to number four on the list: Humanity. Oh boy, do I like this game. Um, this is from designer Johan Levitt, who designed one of the uh, one of my all-time favorite worker placement games, Mirmies, and uh, and then kind of disappeared and hasn't really done much of anything except for like little storyline, story puzzling games and whatnot. But he is back with a vengeance. Ten years later, maybe over ten years, with a whole new uh, tile-laying game set on Titan, one of the moons of Saturn as we are deploying our astronauts to do good, good science in that very inhospitable region. And um, the gameplay here is absolutely wonderful because the way it works is, uh, you know, you, you, usually on most turns, you have one to three of your astronauts available. Your astronauts can do one of two things. They can either activate the modules in your base to harvest resources or clear away debris or do various and sundry things depending on what modules you've built. Or you can send them back to the module fabricator to grab new modules that you can then, you know, build and expand your base of operations. The tricky thing is, when you send one of your um, astronauts back to the fabricator, the fabricator is a gigantic time wheel. At the end of every round, after everybody's used all their, um, 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 what do you call it, uh, Astronauts, the uh, what's it called? The 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 fabricator is going to rotate. Let me see if I can fast forward to a place where it happens again. I saw it a second ago. Should have just paused there. All right, so I'm doing stuff. I'm playing the two player game. This run through will be coming very soon, by the way. Hopefully before Essen, because this I'm telling, calling right now, folks. This is going to be the sleeper hit of Essen. This is going to be the game that people who played it, if people like, hey, what's the big surprise that nobody's talking about that you played? If people play this, this is the one they're going to mention. Humanity is something really special uh, for so many reasons. But okay, I just wanted to show. So at the end, um, first of all, any modules that didn't get, they're gone, and then this rotates. As this arm rotates, if it passes any of your astronauts, that's when they get to come home. And so, this game, in the same way that Mirami's kind of reinvented worker placement, this game, to me, reinvents the time track mechanism of Thebes and Takedo and Glenmore. Because it is a big, monstrous time track game where you might uh, send your astronaut to the fabricator and grab a module that means you won't see that astronaut come back for a long time. You know, I mean, in the same way, you can jump really forward on a time track and then not get a turn again for a while. But the thing is, you've got three astronauts. You could leave your other astronauts home. And even if you won't see your one back for a while, the other ones can still be doing stuff, or they can send out too. They can send out and do quick missions while you wait for the other one to come back that went on a really long mission. But the brilliant thing is, I've only talked about half of what you do in this game. You're, there, there's three things you do you clear out um, debris so you have more room to build modules. It's a big part of the game. And by the way, every time you play, there's going to be three different objectives that we're chasing after, uh, and everybody's competing to be the best at it, to score lots of points. Although, this is not a high-scoring game. Every point in this game counts. But the other thing is, you can send your astronauts to the fabricator not to get more modules, to get more powers, but instead to complete um, scientific missions, which will generally score you points, usually help you uh, achieve objectives, but most importantly, they will unlock special powers. Like a special power that says, hey, all the astronauts that are still stuck out at the fabricator, rotate them counterclockwise to Two or three steps so that they will come back sooner. Or instead, untap all your workers that are that you thought, oh, I couldn't do any more actions this round. I, I had three astronauts. I did two of them to gather the resources I need so I could send the third one to the fabricator. But I had the third one not make a new uh, module that I'll deal with in a future round. But instead, they finished a scientific experiment that let me untap my two uh, astronauts back home. And now I get to do two more turns before the round is over. This game... Is ever since Zolk in the Mayan calendar, I have always been fascinated by games that make the passage of time the most important resource that you are trying to leverage and manage. And I've rarely seen a game that does it in more cool and interesting ways, um, because you know once I mean, you know in Zolkin, once you commit a worker, I mean you know, you're, just not, you're you're gonna you're gonna wait for them to come back once they've done the job you set them out to do. But in this game, you can speed them up, you can bring them back. I'm kind of reminded of what was it a couple of years ago? Corrosion was another game that really made use of time in really interesting ways. But the wonderful thing about this game is it does it with a in the calendar counteresque huge move board. Every time at the end of a round that that arm, that wheel is going to move and just changes everything. It means your workers come back. It means stuff you want to build disappears. It means new opportunities come out. It's something really special. And I'm so glad to see Johan Levitt back at it after nearly a decade of, of not making the games I love to see. Man, man, he's good. And man, he has made something really special. It's my number four of the month, folks. You'll see my run through for it soon. Humanity. Okay, now let's talk about number three on the list: Ezra and Nehemiah. Or, uh, uh, oh shoot, right? Ezra and uh, Nehemiah. 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 Oh. I practice, I practice pronouncing that. And then after talking, how long have I been going? I've been going for an hour and 15 minutes. I totally forget everything. Ezra Nehemiah. Now, this was a sponsored preview. My run through will be coming um next month, uh, you know, closer to when it's crowdfunding campaign launches. This is the latest from Garpill Games and design super duro, Shem Phillips, and Sam McDonald. And for most of you there's nothing more I need to say, right? Because, you know, the West Kingdom series, the South Tigris series, um, you know, uh, uh, the Circadian series, these two, when they work together, they make Euro gold. And they've done it again. Uh, Set in, um, you know, Old Testament biblical times as players are trying to, I believe, if I recall correctly, rebuild the wall of Jerusalem uh, after the the exiles come home. And uh, it's a brilliant, brilliant game. And like always with these, to. At its core, it's a really simple thing. At the start of my turn, I've got some car. I've got four cars. I'm going to play one to my board and that's going to do two things. It's going to give me a goods conversion action I can choose to do if I want, but not, I don't have to. And it's also going to give me banners of three colors. Red banners means I'm contributing to the temple and keeping the fire lit. Gray banners means I'm clearing out the rubble and rebuilding the wall. Very similar. Reminds me a lot of Snowdonia in that regard. And blue banners means I am teaching the Torah to the people and traveling around to the camp and you know d- you know dispensing aid and stuff like that so I've got to pick a card that has a good combination of what kind of trade goods do I want to do right now. What trade am I going to engage in? And more importantly, hey, if this has three red banners on it, I probably want to do one of the red actions. But then once I place the card down on my next turn, if I have another red banner card in my hand, I can play that next to the previous one. And now the first round I did a three banner action. Now I can do a five banner action. And then I can recruit somebody that gives me a permanent banner. So from now on, every time I do red banner actions, I'm getting bonuses and whatnot. Um, man, I could go on and on about it. I mean, suffice to say, this game looks incredibly daunting and overwhelming. But at its core, it's a very simple game of, uh, you know, this one simple choice. Every turn, which card am I going to play? Which combination of actions do I want to have action to? And how will it combine with actions in the future? Uh, it has bits and pieces of a lot of their other games. I see elements of, you know, Paladins of the West Kingdom in this game. But honestly, I think... I think this might be their best game of the two of them working together yet. I think so. I think it's Jen's favorite of all of them. We played all the West Kingdoms. We played the first South Tigers. I I do love the circadian games, Or the main Circadian's first light. I love that one too. Is this better than first light? That I'd have to think about. But this is maybe their second best or their best design ever. And you'll be able to see my run-through coming for it soon. I know I've only just scratched the surface, but man, folks, watch for it. This one's going to be fantastic. Ezra and Nehemiah. Okay. Now... Almost done, folks. Let's move on to number two, Shipyard, second edition. (sighs) You know what? I've talked about this. I've been talking about this game for over a decade. I did a run-through for it over a decade ago. I've often referred to it as one of the greatest Rondell games of all time and one of my favorite designer of all time, Vladimir Sushi's greatest designs of all time. And here we are in 2023 and he's revisiting it and bringing a new lick of coat or a a lick of paint, a coat of paint, a new lick of something, but a coat of paint um, to revisit one of his great all-time classics, and it shows that there's. Uh, it is just as good as it ever was. This is not a game that when it comes back, it needs to be tweaked and balanced for... I mean, this game was ahead of its time in some of its brilliant mechanisms, and I'm just going to leave it at... You know, Vladimir Sushi, he knocked it out of the park over a decade ago. And so... We now have a new version of it that's going to be coming out at Essen that has a production value that equals the gameplay. Not you know some people think it doesn't look as good as the old one. I think it looks ten times better. But you know what? Art is subjective in the eye of the beholder. But more importantly, Shipyard has been out of print forever, and so for it to come back and um, you know a whole new generation of geeks can uh, find out what Jen and I have loved for over a decade. Now this was one of our early games when we got into the hobby. At one point, this was the heaviest game we've ever played, and now it just feels kind of like a nice midweight euro, but it's so sharp it is a rondelle within rondelle within rondelle within rondel there are four independent rondelles. you are trying to um uh, pr- uh, you know, leverage and it's all driven by one of the best time track mechanisms we've ever seen. Uh, the best uh, iterations on time tracks, and it was great then, it continues to be great now, and now it looks great too. And it's my number two of the month, one of my all time faves, Shipyard, the second edition. But the number one, folks, uh, has got to be the White Castle. And actually, I played this last month, but I was under an embargo, so I could not talk about it till now. Um, but yeah, there's no way this doesn't make my top 10 of the year. There's no way this doesn't make my wife's top 10 of the year. She gave it uh, five out of... I mean, this is from the same pro- publisher... And design team up as Red Cathedral, which is one of the the best um, euros. I mean, Wyldergard is one of the best euros to have come out in recent years. As far as I'm concerned, White Castle is superior. This is a dice worker placement game, or uh, dice uh, you know, with, with a nice dollop of dice drafting, with a ton of tension and uh, you know, really exciting moves you can make. Full of incredible combo tastic uh, moves you can make. That I can do this particular move that will trigger like three turns. Worth of moves off of just this one move I'm going to make. And you do that a lot. This game gives you many opportunities to feel smart and satisfied with the choices you're making. And um, you only get nine turns. So it's a fast game, too. You are going to take nine turns. But remember, every turn you take should have two or three turns worth of actions if you combo things well together, if you can pick the right dice at the right time and get them into the right place. Uh, and... I think it's fantastic. I have heard some people worry that it's not that great for two because one of the features of being able to stack dice um, goes away and the game becomes a bit too punitive. That is incorrect. I am here to tell you this is a phenomenal two-player experience, and I do not feel shortchanged at all. There is always a way to do whatever it is you want to do, even if you can't stack dice. It would be neat to be able to stack dice, but it is not necessary at all. I guess you could use the AI system and bring that in as a third player if you wanted dice stacking. But at no point did Jen and I say, "Oh man, I really wish I could stack my dice." It's just, "Oh, it's a worker placement game. You took that space, okay? Well, you know what? I can use this other die over here, and then tr- and do what I want to do via a three-step combo instead." So you didn't freeze me out of anything. It's just always looking for the best combo chain you can do with only nine turns uh, to try to get your meeples deployed to the uh, soldier training fields and the gardening and the uh, working your way up the pal- the the White Castle in terms of intrigue. Um, there's basically three different mini games going on: a harvesting mini game and a set collection game and a progress. Uh, you know. Uh, what do you call it, tech track game. They all come together with a great drafting and uh, dice worker placement system that you play over literally nine turns. So this is a fast game that gives you the feel of a game that lasts... It feels like you played a... Uh, you know, a three-hour, super-crunchy, in-depth Euro in less than an hour. And that is something to be celebrated. I haven't seen something like this since a couple of years ago when we had Zapotec. And I think White Castle maybe, maybe does it even better? Sorry, Fabio. Zapotec was amazing, too. But anyway, that's why it is the number one game of the month. Absolutely phenomenal. Uh, Folks, this is going to sell out instantly at Essence Spiel. In case you're going to be there, Uh, you're definitely going to want to try it if you get a shot. Number one of the month the White Castle. Phew. And folks, I'm sorry, I think I went on a bit long. It's supposed to be one of the longest uh, roundups I've ever done, but I like talking about games, and there are a lot to talk about. Hopefully you enjoyed it. Maybe you found a few you were interested in. But anyway, folks, there's just one more thing to do, which is to say thank you to all of these folks right here who help keep Roto running by supporting the show either on YouTube here as members or over at Patreon.com or even over at Twitch for subscribing there. Thanks to every single one of you. Uh, we couldn't do it without you folks. But going to do some special uh, thanks to a few of these backers. Adrian Dong, Aista Semillonis, Amber Rail, Amy, April, Blake Wilson, Charles Hare, Cheryl Howard, Chris Arnold, Cobra Misfit, Dan Halligan, Dave Salvatore, Davey Davis, Demnois 2030 ce Dennis Inti, Dr. Fu, Eric Z, Avatar, or is it Evitar? Uh, Graham Wallace, Hans Peter Bach, Heather Rudarian, Jay Huber, Jeff Glazen, Jeff Young, Jerry Reese, Jimmy Schroeder Hansen, KB, Caitlin Albert, Kisa Griffin, Lex, uh, Marilyn, Marlon Cruz, Mike Bloom, Mom Gamer, Nicholas Elkins, uh, Selma Lee, Stacey Lee, Sharon Laubach, Steve Urcolini, and Victory BHG. Thank you all, especially. Big, big thanks. And finally, thanks to everybody else. And thanks to you folks for watching the show. And uh, hope to see you again next month. Uh, If you don't want to miss it, go on ahead and hit the big old subscribe button. And meanwhile, there's some other stuff you can check out as well on the channel. I'm exhausted though. And I got to go do some editing now. And so thank you once again to sponsor of the show, Arcane Wonders. Have a nice day, everybody. Talk to you later. So long. Uh, Bye-bye.